No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and well would play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over, and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our feet. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Tree at the Back podcast brought to you backpagefootball.com I am joined this week by Enda Higgins and Phil Green how are you men? Good are things? Yeah not bad not bad enjoying the, the drop in temperature we'll be back to normal this week thank god Yeah I'm uh, I'm not melting as I sit here recording which is a nice change of pace from the last <laughs> 10 days Absolutely yeah um, we've loads to get into lots of uh, Premier League talking points this week uh, we'll obviously touch on uh, the Liverpool and United bits, um, maybe a little bit of Arsenal, look at some of the the Irish interest, a um, couple of guys starting to catch the eye, um, and old faces as well, old familiar faces, maybe breaking back into Stephen Kenny's plans um, ahead of the, the upcoming internationals, and then we'll take a quick look around Europe, uh, some of the leagues back in action there this weekend, um, and loads of interest and talking points there. I suppose... <laughs> I mean, where where do you even start with the Premier League this weekend? It was an absolute uh, mental one. Um, I suppose it all started on Saturday with uh, with the demolition of, of Manchester United, and I think we were we were kind of throwing around ideas um, about how to approach things. Um, maybe you know, a, a kind of a deep dive from end of the overall uh, state of United at the moment. Um, I, it kind of feels like an end of series. Game of Thrones side where they're trying to pack in so much into like three or four episodes. There's just been so much going on over the past few weeks. Um, and then we had Chelsea Spurs on Sunday, which was just a f- mental game altogether um, on and off the pitch. Um, and we might get into that shortly. And then I suppose Liverpool's performance on, on Monday night, feeling we might start there, kind of um, kind of took us down off our pedestal a small bit <laughs> after uh, after Saturday's result. Um, and, and it kind of serves up a very interesting kind of dynamic now into next weekend, doesn't it? Um, Monday night again against United. Two teams, desperate need for a win for very different reasons. And I suppose, you know, United, all the attention has been on them. Um, two games into 10 head three and two losses. And they could be above Liverpool come the end of Monday night, which is kind of astonishing when you think about it. And you're kind of wondering... You know, will this be a bit of a cagey one? You know, will Liverpool, you know, get a little bit uptight? Um, there's some injuries, obviously. Darwin Nunes is suspended now. You know, United, not that they've nothing to lose, but, you know, they're kind of, they can go out there and, and, and try and pull a result. And, and, and you know, it would obviously kind of paper all out of our cracks there. How, how are you feeling going into this one? Yeah, I, I don't think it's the ideal time for either side for this fixture to come up, to be honest. Um 
I think the fact that both Liverpool and United have to wait until the Monday to try and right some of the wrongs from the weekend yeah. doesn't suit them either. I think both of them would rather play a less pressurised fixture next. Uh, I think Liverpool will be happy that it's not at Anfield because things got a little fraught there, I think, the, um, in, in the Palace game. And from United's point of view, maybe they'd prefer not to have to face uh, Old Trafford uh, after what happened last week. They might prefer one on the road as well. But I think both sides would rather not be facing beleaguered biggest rivals in this case. I think they'd like a nice middle-of-the-road game where they could maybe blow some cobwebs off um, because you'd imagine that Ten Hag and Klopp are both in their own ways going to try and G up their players for a relatively big effort. At a, at a minimum, you'd imagine the United players are going to run their bollocks off because like he, he, if he brought them in on their day off and made them run the exact amount of distance they were outrun by Brentford, you'd imagine the minimum they're going to do, maybe I'm giving them too much credit there, but you imagine the minimum they're going to do is run. So it, I don't know how cagey it'll be compared to some of the absolute classics of the genre we've gotten often at Old Trafford where the games have been absolute dog shit between these two sides. It might be a little bit more harem scarum because there's, as you say, rightly Kev, there's an awful lot on the line now for both of these sides, which is mad three games into a season. But it already feels like, from Liverpool's point of view, with the margin for error being so low against a side like City, that they've kind of dropped, like, at least a third of the points they're able to drop for the whole season in the first two games. Um, and then United, I, I don't know how little they have to lose, to be honest. I think there's a, quite an amount to lose. I think they'll be very aware they lost this fixture 5-0 last season. I think they'll be spooked about the possibility of getting done again. I just don't see an awful lot from that dressing room that says they'll come out with kind of a devil-may-care attitude. I just feel like they'll be quite encumbered by it. But I think Liverpool will as well. Liverpool aren't playing with any sort of uh, kind of conviction at the minute, I, I, I don't see. So I think it could be quite a harem scarum game, maybe not overly high on quality. Um, but I think you're right, there's real pressure on both sides here to produce something. Um, and I don't know if it'll be the best game we've ever seen. I wouldn't be surprised if there's kind of a, a good few cards as fellas try to kind of put themselves about and, and make themselves kind of put themselves across as kind of being as being on top. But um, yeah, it's pro- like I think both sides, funnily enough, will be not looking forward to seeing the other one across the Old Trafford Tunnel next Monday night. I think ideally they wouldn't have had this sort of pressurised the game when both of them are at quite a low ebb. You mentioned um, the margin of error. And I suppose to try and kind of put that into context, like last season, Liverpool only drew twice against teams outside of the top six, say, and they've already done that twice this season. And there's 36 games left. And, you know, if you, I suppose, you know, bank on City doing City things for the rest of the season, which, you know, is well within the realms of possibility, considering how good they are and how well they've started so far, just kind of shows like, you know, Liverpool really couldn't have afforded uh, to drop four points so early into the season um, and be so far adrift of City already, which seems kind of crazy to say on, on the 17th of August. Um, but like on Monday night, like I think I said, I said to someone maybe 22, 25 minutes in, you know, this is coming for Liverpool. They were all over Palace. Um, you know, it, it felt like they were knocking on the door. Um and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, on what you felt went wrong for, for Liverpool. And obviously, we'll get into the to the Nunez um, red card. But, I mean, they had 24 sats to Shevin, But it, it was kind of a weird setup. Everyone seemed to be bunched in a kind of a, a vertical line across the edge of the box, including the likes of Andy Robertson. And it wasn't really until Nunez went off that kind of 
relieve a little bit of space and maybe give Diaz um, more effort to roam. And obviously he, he scored a fantastic goal, but it did feel like that Liverpool, you know, they had all the stats, they had all the shots, but the way they were set up and the structure of it all just seemed a little bit weird and a little bit like, you know, they, they don't really, maybe don't really know how to play with uh, a guy like Nunes, who is going to kind of keep his position, uh, especially when you've guys um, who like to come forward and who like to kind of occupy those those areas, maybe around just around the edge of the box and just all felt very cramped and squashed. And, you know, it, it, I think that was probably what kind of led to the goal as well is that everything was was kind of lopsided in that, you know, the midfielder were, were vastly unprotected and, and, and Palace took advantage of that. Yeah, like when I look back to the Community Shield, especially that first 30 minutes, I thought, you know, Liverpool, no issues here. They're just flicking the switch and going again with that intensity, pace, pressing. Um, and then the Fulham match was the complete opposite of that. I thought they were really, really flat, really struggled badly. Um, and then there was this weird setup on Monday night. I think you're correct, Kevin. It was almost like back to you know the late Benitez days of this zonal marking, everyone needing to kind of occupy that individual space and the way that Klopp's Liverpool have evolved over time, that the complete opposite of that. It's all about fluidity, players changing position all the time, everybody knowing exactly what they're doing. They're not stuck to one spot. To the point where even you look at the Zaha goal and, you know, it was almost like Virgil van Dijk didn't want to leave his, you know, rectangle of, of space that he was supposed to be occupying instead of closing him down. And it was a really strange experience to watch. They still had the domination and so many shots and so many attempts, but it didn't feel like the same fluidity that we're used to Liverpool over the last few years. And I think it really rammed home the absence of Mane, who, you know, I think has been you know, certainly Liverpool's most important creative player over the past 18 months, especially in games like that against, you know, an organised Palace side where you need something a little bit different. And in fairness to Diaz, he did kind of step up to that once Nunes went off. But I don't think it's really a big coincidence that when Nunes went off, everybody just kind of, went back to what they used to before, not necessarily looking for that number nine. And in fairness, his movement was very good up until the sending off, even though he mm. had a bit of a, a nightmare with the chances that he missed. But it, it didn't feel like the Klopp Liverpool that we're used to. And you would have to say it was likely down to the fact that they, they are playing with, you know, what you would call now a traditional number nine, where everything is focused around, um, you know, giving him chances and, and, and playing him in as a, as opposed to having a front three who just move between those three positions constantly and it's almost impossible to defend against. And also there was a bit of naivety I felt in picking Nat Phillips as well. Uh, you, you know, I, I think what Liverpool really needed at the start of this mm. season in order to keep up with City was just to batter somebody early on and, and really get that momentum that we're used to them getting at the start of a season. And, uh, you know, Fulham played really well the week before last. I was, you know, I thought, you know, Palace on a Monday night, get an early goal and, you know, read off four or five and, and things are all right for Klopp. But I think it's it's going to be, you know, if, if they are going to go to this more zonal, rigid formation, I, I don't think it suits, you know, 90% of their squad in order to fit, fit in Nunes. But as I said, I think his movement was really good before the sending off. So I think there's a way that they can integrate both, but it, you know, it's going to take time. And unfortunately, Liverpool don't really have that after already being four points behind City, which in a normal season, in normal seasons gone by, we'd be used to that. United you know, always started slowly under Sir Alex and, and things like that. But the league has changed so much with these two dominant teams that it seems like a, a, a mini catastrophe for them already. So, um, yeah, and uh, you know, you wonder about Jurgen Klopp as well. I mean, 
I think back to last season, they did come two games away with achieving something that no team in England has ever achieved. And that's got to be exhausting to come back and start all over again from, from a, um, you know, a fresh starting point. And he, you know, he mightn't have meant anything by it, but his comments about Nunes being the only striker he had, which is what he was starting, as opposed to saying, you know, he blew my socks off against Fulham. How could I not start him? It was just little things like that, that of course you overanalyze when the team doesn't win, but, um, you know, I think it's going to be a, I, th- I think he'll arguably face his toughest point uh, with Liverpool in terms of keeping them motivated for the rest of the season if this kind of bad start continues. I think that Phillips' point is an interesting one, and like it feels like he was trying to be a little too cute and look a little bit too far forward and ahead of like he looked kind of looked beyond the task at hand in that like Gomez had a half an hour or forty minutes in him and. He was he was clearly thinking, okay, Matip, Canade, not going to be back for United. Want Gomez, okay, for Old Trafford. But if Gomez had, four, had 30, 40 minutes in him, surely you give him the first 45, as you say, try and blow the doors off Palace, and then maybe introduce Phillips. I don't, and same with Firmino missing out as a precaution. And Klopp, uh, even before the first game of the season, saying that the preseason was going to extend into the start of the season. It feels like he's been trying to engender some squad management quite early. And maybe be a little too clever in a time when, as you rightly say, they're they're trying to adapt to a pretty big change in the way things are set up, and maybe a little bit more continuity or just a little bit of playing your best fucking players might actually yeah. help. And um, like if it, like put it this way, if it was like a Champions League final, I'm 100 percent sure Gomez would have played, and Firmino was at least on the bench, if not um, in consideration to start. And mm. not that Palace on a Monday night is import is as important as the Champions League final. I'm not trying to say that, but there's like as we've said before, there's so little margin for error that trying to be too cute off the back of a really bad performance against Fulham probably wouldn't have like like you know I don't think it's the right thing to have done, um, and it left them really short on options off the bench in terms of game changers. Uh, like I, I thought, Carvalho did did okay when he came on. He obviously had a, a really good chance or made a really good attempt. But if he's the kind of sharpest tool you have to try and change things around, especially in an era of five subs, notwithstanding they have loads of injuries. But I don't know, it just it smacked of a li- trying to be a little bit too cute and a little bit too smart. Um, and like you said, and they're coming off the back of playing every possible game. And I think the mental fatigue, but as well the physical fatigue, like it's a lot of soft muscle injuries that these lads have at the minute that are out. And I think we might actually be seeing the results of them playing every possible game last season, coming off the back of a heavy preseason and they're starting to twang a little early as well. So... I'd, yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to plot a route forward at the minute unless they kind of go back to basics a little bit. Like Nunes is going to be out for what three games now, and so he's not going to be in consideration for a little while. So it is going to be back a little bit more what we're used to seeing, and so maybe it changes around again. But I don't know. It, it, it at the minute it feels a little bit disjointed, and um, at all levels. And like you said, like the the, the kind of messaging out of Klopp isn't what we're used to hearing. Even the thing about like it felt like there was a wit at the training ground and stuff. There's just stuff that he was saying that he wouldn't normally say in public. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't matter really, but then like you said, when they lose or when they drop points, it feels like it matters. Yeah, and it's it's strange because like it was always his biggest strength, really, picking his best team on every single occasion. I mean, there were even times in, you know, League Cup matches or FA Cup matches where you thought he could rest players and then Salah and Mane would be starting and you know, it just looked bizarre at the time, but uh you know, like there certainly is a different atmosphere around Liverpool at the moment, and maybe a bit unlucky, isn't it? If Thiago was fit, Jota was fit. I think 
you know, you have a totally different lineup on Monday night and and everything was right with the world again. But Liverpool were always so good at managing those situations. Anyways, I mean, you know, you look back to even the Barcelona semi-final where they won 4-0 and the amount of players who were missing that night, it didn't really matter. You know, they had other people to come in and tick the box. You're, you know, so losing your Shaqiris, uh, Origis, these type of players and not necessarily replacing them uh, is, is going to be interesting to see how, how that affects uh, things going forward as well. He certainly seems to be far more negative about injuries except for that period where he just moaned on about them all the time when he actually did have some serious injuries. But usually he's been quite upbeat about them throughout his Liverpool uh, career. Uh, so, yeah, it's, there's a strange vibe about them at the moment. And it goes back to Kev saying at the start of the show, you know, like maybe it's coming at a bad time for both teams, but I think it's coming at a much worse time for Liverpool. I think they'd happily love to just batter the bejesus out of somebody just to get all of this stress out of their system almost, whereas... You know, we'll get on to it in a while, but I think United maybe just need, you know, an opposition in front of them that isn't somebody they're expected to beat. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yes, but just quickly back to the Klopp point, he, he was a little bit weird, I thought. Um, you know, his kind of usual spiky self after the result, but um, even before then, um, with some of his comments um, in, in relation to the to the injuries that they had, and I I I do wonder, you know, if Jota or Firmino was was available, does Nunez start here? Because um, I think I think Luis Diaz has very much been the exception rather than the rule when it comes to a new signing at Liverpool, where he kind of you know grabbed the the bull by the horns and seemed to kind of start immediately. Um, whereas players are generally given time to bed in. Um, and and find their feet a little bit, and I do wonder. Uh, and he said that afterwards, you know, they'll probably use the next couple of weeks to to build him up physically. So I do wonder, you know, was he maybe a little bit uh, a couple of weeks behind in terms of uh, his, his physicality? And I mean, Wacom Anderson, um, I'm sure you've seen the the clips going round um, of the job he did in him. I mean, it was it was it wasn't. Um, I mean. Uh, World class shithousery. It was a very normal centre forward yeah. versus centre back pushing and shoving, and, and and Nunes seemed to get a little bit frustrated. Didn't get a huge lot of uh, activity on the ball, and and kind of uh, uh, kind of bounced off of that. But I mean, um, yeah, I just do wonder if uh, if you know he's been rushed into things a little bit, and obviously uh, ifs and buts if if he wasn't on the field. Uh, on Monday night, um, I think he was probably um, going to be taken off, maybe around the hour mark. Anyway, so um, you know, uh, kind of a mood point at this stage. But uh, Phil, I know we wanted to talk briefly, just very quickly on on the abuse and and, and the online abuse that's come Anderson's way uh, off the back of that uh, performance on Monday night. Uh, I mean, he had an excellent game. I, you you can't fall that. He, he he put it up to Nunes. Um, it's it's going to be fair from from Darwin's uh, biggest one on one battle over the course of the season. There's a lot of fine centre backs uh, throughout the Premier League, but I mean he shared a lot of it on 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 his Instagram. Some of the abuse and death threats he's gotten from Liverpool fans or so called Liverpool fans. I suppose it's like I I don't follow too many Liverpool fans. I kind of I, I try to keep the, the bubble small because I am kind of acutely aware that a lot of them kind of jump the gun. Uh, when it comes to, to to certain topics, but um, there is, and you find a notice every so often. Say if there's uh, kind of a, a silence in the transfer market or something, 
there's a kind of an FSG out brigade and, and there's a lot of kind of impatient fans that are quick to jump down down the club's throats if, if things aren't going too well and it kind of reared itself on Monday night which is which is very disappointing to see and I suppose you know it just shows that Liverpool just like any club isn't immune to having that minority of dickheads that are, are going to jump into a guy's messages and, and, and throw a, a, a heap of abuse at a guy for, for doing his job. Yeah, like 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 you said, um, there there is a noticeable, and maybe it's because I, I you know I am a Liverpool fan, so I follow Liverpool accounts. But it's, it is noticeable there's an, uh, like an overreactive element in the fan base. But this is over and above all of that in terms of like uh, there's like literally no words for the people who do this sort of stuff. And uh, and you, as you said, it's not just in it's football fandom on, online in general. Like you see it, like the, the tin end of the wedge of people saying like you know Penaldo and Pessi or having their notifications on to call like you know Manchester United's team lineup washed or finished club and then the thick end of the wedge is the young fella and Kerry racially abusing Ian Wright or these guys sliding into Anderson's DMs to say that they're going to kill him and his family mm-hmm. it's like it's like the four channing of of on, of online discourse everything is about fucking ratio and on on pwning and you know, being rattled and living rent free, like no, all of it is done at, like none of it is done intentionally. If you know what I mean, like it's all done in the in the in the, the the kind of grasp for the ratio or to rattle someone. Like the greatest thing you can do in online football, Twitter is rattle someone. It's like oh, you're rattled, you're rent free, you're owned, you know, washed, finished, you know, hall and clear. Like it, there, it's like it is just so frustrating and so mind-numbing and it's enough to put you off football full stop because like any sort of reasonable discourse just disappears down this hole of like you know inane rubbish from like shit posters who learned their lingo off 4chan and 8chan and like you know listen to like andrew tate or or um or alex jones and thinks they're think they're edgy like it's it's honestly it's really depressing and it actually probably upset me and depressed me more than Liverpool drawn with Palace <laughs> like the just seeing that this is and like the times of the story about the Anderson abuse and underneath it it was just other fans other uh, clubs fans talking about always a victim never your fault Hillsborough tropes and it's just another cycle straight away so there's these dickhead fans who slide into a fella's DMs and wish harm on his family for literally doing nothing. And by the way, even if he did die to get Nunes sent off, there's no way in the world you should be dealing with that sort of abuse. But he literally did nothing wrong. He gets this abuse. And fans' reaction to that online abuse is to give more online abuse. It just really summed up the cycle to me. Um, and I, I just think like football fa- football fandom is in a, in a pretty bad place, I think. like The discourse is just beyond repair, I think. I think it's too toxic. And it, if I think about it too much, it really, really depresses me. Just looking around talking shit. You've been in the league for 30 years, Jamie. Right. How's the time? Just looking around talking shit. Just looking around talking shit. And uh, I was quite disappointed uh, not to be around for the for the reaction to uh, United's 4 0 defeat uh, against Bournemouth. Um, I was out in the boat um, uh, in in, uh, in rural North Tipperary, and the uh, the internet coverage wasn't wasn't too uh, too solid. So I went on the live score, uh, one 0 down. Um, and it kind of froze on me for for a couple of minutes. And next time I got to refresh, it was it was at four nil, and uh, I thought I was seeing things. It was it was kind of hard to believe. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed. I missed out on all the the fun on Twitter uh, at United's expense. Um, obviously, uh, not laughing now after Monday night. But I mean, 
it's just been a mental couple of weeks for the club and it continues to be a mental day since then. I mean, I'm logging on to Twitter throughout the day and it seems like a, a new player has been linked with you every hour. Um, you know, it's like a roulette machine of who, of who's next. Um, interesting reports tonight, though, that um, Sir James Ratcliffe is uh, apparently interested in, in buying at least a minority share in the club. Um, he was obviously close to, to buying Chelsea before Todd Bowley came in in the last second. Um, so I suppose, you know, if this all if the, all of this culminates in the Glazers' stake being um, limited uh, by a few percentage, um, happy days, because I think, and, and Gary Neville was, was uh, quick to, to kind of reiterate that point that it does, it seems, all kind of stem back to the ownership and, and everything continues to be... Uh, to be a symptom of, of, of how they've operated the club for, for the past 20 odd years? Yeah, it's really tough to analyse. I think there's, I always look at two things. Number one, the off the field chaos. <clears throat> and number two, how does that reflect itself on the pitch? And it's very tough to distinguish between the two. And I'd hoped at this point we would have a manager who would be able to kind of ignore the off the field discourse and, you know, fan anger you know people above your head not doing their job having owners who don't care who won't release funds who up until yesterday wouldn't approve the red paint outside of old trafford um which they finally did and gave the two lads a small roller to do it who ran out of paint which kind of sums up the whole shit show off the pitch but i still think uh on the pitch you know the players and the manager need to be you know working with a you know, far more street smarts than they are you know uh, you know ten hag you can, you can obviously say he hasn't been backed properly and that's fair enough and his apparently his his advisors are shocked at what's going on at united and uh, not sure why considering you know what happened the previous managers but i don't think he's played you know the hand he's been dealt very well either he's quite naive against brighton in terms of ericsson the false nine then again on saturday um you know ericsson as your deep midfielder and it, it just, it, it was a very strange match, actually. At one point, there was 68% possession for United. Brentford had four shots on target, and, and it was 4-0. And that's the type of thing you'd see in football managers that would make you throw your laptop out the window. But somehow, this activity <laughs> off the pitch just seems to seep into what's happening with the players and management all the time. And it becomes one big, you know, drain on, you know, the supporters and the club. I, I was at Old Trafford a couple of weeks ago and the atmosphere was just horrific, you know, going into the ground, every single murmur was, geez, Fred and McTominay starting again, Fred and McTominay starting again, you know, same old season, same old season. And, you know, up until United got, you know, quite the flugy goal from the corner, that really the, the atmosphere was pretty dead. Um, which kind of goes back to our earlier point. I think maybe Liverpool is coming along at just the right time to give everybody a bit of inspiration and lift. Liverpool are still probably expected to go there and win, but you know United have lost to two teams who are you know not at Liverpool's level. So if they lose, it'll just be same old, same old. What do you expect with you know this team, a five foot nine centre back according to Gary Neville, this manager, this ownership, <laughs> uh, this structure. But there certainly is something changing off the pitch finally in terms of you know uh, somebody said ripples become tides there uh, this evening and you know yes the musk thing was a joke but you know i'm sure that's something the glazers would notice much more than De Gea were throwing it in the net uh, now this jim ratcliffe announcement which, which has been confirmed by ineos tonight they're already going to hand over or make available shares to be 
uh, bought by the fans, which would which would have given them some, um, you know, voting rights. Uh, it wasn't just a case of you know releasing them to make some money. So something is creeping in that we haven't really seen under the Glazer ownership in the past kind of two decades. Uh, now it, it will take time in, in order for it to be something that's tangible and we see actually make a difference. But I think if if we were to step back and see right what did the Glazers want from um, their ownership of United. We know they want the Champions League cash. That's been made very clear with every manager they've hired. We know they want their dividends every quarter without it being questioned. Uh, we know they don't want too much hassle, you know, off the pitch from the fans and from the media. And, you know, I still think they've gotten a pretty easy ride overall, especially from the American press. But with everything that's happening at this moment in time and, and the lack, lack of success on the pitch, which, you know, somehow in their chaos of ownership has managed to still be there in terms of obviously what Sir Alex did and, and Mourinho winning a few trophies and um, Solskjaer reaching a European final, even only a couple of years ago, these things kind of just keep the pressure off their back slightly. And I think all that's kind of pretty much faded now and, and full spotlight is on them, especially now with Woodward gone as well, who was quite a handy little shield for them to wheel out in front of public and, and make a show of himself. He's gone now. Um, you know, Murta isn't obviously covering himself in glory either, but there is a, a change in the atmosphere off the pitch in terms of, you know, the reality of can is the Glazers' ownership sustainable for much longer? Now, my only concern with that is if Chelsea are valued at four billion, the Glazers, you know, rough back at the envelope calculations, they're probably looking for six or seven. But if this, you know, Ratcliffe bid and, you know, taking partial ownership does start to creep in and the entire landscape changes going forward. Uh, and and hopefully you'll see a different and better run club. But, you know, in the short term, I think things are only going to get worse before they're going to get better in terms of on the pitch and off the pitch. And it's going to be a real slog of a season. And you'd worry for Ten Hag if he has the mentality to consistently deal with that. Uh, he's already looking like a pretty stressed out individual altogether uh, and making them run 13 kilometers on on the morning after a game in 31 degrees heat isn't my idea of <laughs> <laughs> fixing problems. Very GA, uh, I thought. Yeah, exactly. Very, uh, you know, Westmead under 21, you know, you're on the piss last night. Here we go. We're going to run today, you know. Let's see if you're up for this kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, I thought he did have the personality for United and he, he might still do. But, um, you know, he's he's been met with a lot of challenges and I'm sure he wouldn't have expected this early in his tenure. But, uh, there is something happening in terms of what, what we're seeing off the pitch and, and that's you know a glimmer of hope and what's been a pretty horrific start to the season on and off the pitch. Mm. The players they've been linked to in the past two days, there's been a list of about 30 of them. And I mean, if these Casemiro figures are true, I mean, that's just outrageous figures for a fellow who's 31 at the start of the year. We've learned nothing from the, you know, Nemanja Matic experience of <laughs> bringing in a, a DM who's, who's passed his past his best but um we'll see how the next two weeks goes it'll be every day a new story of chaos and it's it's pretty exhausting but i don't know there's just something about monday night that i feel could give everybody a lift uh and i think it, it's maybe just what united need uh because i think if they rock up and do lose you kind of think well what do you expect but they could just do something against the liverpool side who we've discussed are slightly struggling but it would certainly need a change of approach and mentality from what we've seen in the first two games 
Yeah, and we had a, a comment in from a, a listener, Paul Atriades, who said, uh, "United are a shambles. I don't think things will improve until the Glazers are gone," which I think is a is a sentiment shared by many. Um, quickly, in terms of on the pitch, uh, and I, I suppose his transfers thus far and and, and how he's utilised them have have been kind of questionable, but and I think it's it's probably been evident since the first game, and even more so now after the warm-up game, but. David again goals and mm. his skill set is completely on you know it it doesn't equal what Ten Hag is trying to do and I tweeted a couple of weeks back you know I thought it was quite similar to the Simon Mignolet situation at Liverpool mm. uh, and I think probably the the Joe Hart situation and Ken Early wrote a, a good piece on the Irish Times on Monday mm. um that's more similar I think to 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 the game that it was probably it was one hundred percent evident from game one that Joe Hart isn't going to face Pep's system, and he was gone out the door immediately. And you know, when you look at United's options, and it's Tom Heaton on the bench, and Dean Henderson is saving penalties for Nottingham Forest against West Ham, and you're linked with Jan Sommer today, who yes. is you know a pretty <clears throat> a pretty good goalkeeper in the Bundesliga, but bit again, of a porn star as well, doesn't he? <laughs> not, not the, not the future. Uh, uh, number one forever. It's a really weird situation, and you just kind of wonder, like, what were they looking at over the summer? Yeah, or even looking at uh, at the game over the past couple of years that it, they think that they thought that he could, you know, fit that role. It's one I would give Ten Hag less criticism over in terms of you know Henderson made it very clear that you know he was leaving before the new manager even had a chance to speak to him or see him play or see him train. Uh, he said he intentionally didn't want to play any preseason matches or train because, you know, he was afraid that the manager would actually see that he can catch a football and, you know, pass it to people, uh, unlike mm. Paella head. Um, <laughs> but it, it's strange, but when I look back at the Henderson versus De Gea situation under Ollie, there's one game that always sticks in my head. And listen, Henderson didn't make amazing saves any time throughout his United career, but I remember the 3-1 away win against Spurs where uh, it was, I think Cavani, Greenwood and maybe Fernandez scored. Um, and there were three or four occasions where United played a really high line. It was Maguire and Lindelof, I think. And Henderson just cleaned up every single time. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, these are centre-backs who are far more confident with a keeper behind them, knowing that he's going to, you know, rush from his penalty area, you know, not vacate the space in behind them. And he's just going to give them a lot more confidence. And every time I saw Henderson play since then, I think that the matches away at West Ham, Burnley, uh, where United scored directly from his passes out of the back, I just thought it was a very straightforward situation that, you know, he would be United's number one going forward. All right, there's huge concerns in Carrington about, you know, his attitude and his, his how he how he even talks to staff in, in, in Carrington and, you know, his own, uh, his own self-worth. There's a bit of uh, the Jordan Pickfords about him apparently, but, you know, you have to say there was very little argument for him not starting ahead of the De Gea in the past 18 months. And you talk about him, yes, he got COVID at the start of last season, but I always felt De Gea's start was overblown anyway. Um, you know, one good match against Wolves, he was okay against Leeds, against Newcastle, but certainly not to the extent where you'd say, right, Henderson should only start a handful of games this season, which is what ended up happening. Um uh, and there was a great thread on Twitter after the Europa League final about you know how different his penalty technique is to De Gea's in terms of he takes a forward and, and right step or left step towards 
where he thinks the ball is going to go and it gives him this this extra reach whereas De Gea kind of tries to follow the ball which is you know almost impossible to do unless it's kind of aimed at you it's almost very Peter Shilton <laughs> Italian 90 if you look at those back at those Germany penalties um, you know you're just you're just diving into air you've you almost have no chance unless the penalty is a very comfortable height so I think he's dealing with the outcome of that Solskjaer decision of not being brave enough to make Henderson his number one when he came back from COVID and I think that combined with the fact that he probably wanted to spend the funds on on outfield players has left him in this situation where he has to kind of publicly back his number one because we don't have you know somebody he can bring in to replace him immediately I mean you can't really be trusting Tom Heaton to start Premier League games at his age unfortunately and his style isn't much different anyways he's not going to start playing out from the back or doing a Cruyff turn against Salah next Monday night so uh, he's very much a a stand and deliver type of keeper so um, it's something I said during the summer. He might try and address in January if it if it continues. He, that that might happen. Um, but I I think his hands are pretty tied at the moment in terms of the situation he finds himself in. I mean, even the under twenty one keeper Kovar isn't great with his feet either. Henderson was would have been the standout choice for him uh, in terms of how he wants to play. But unfortunately, uh, Henderson himself kind of ruled that option out and, and left United with no choice but to grant his loan to Forrest. So I. I'd be kind of wary to criticize him too much for that De Gea stuff, even though his comments are very much, you know, he's going to back him for the season and stuff like that. I think if he's the manager we we think he is and that we saw he is at Ajax, I think he'll address that situation over the next 12 months, especially. Isn't that just like such a good encapsulation of where United are? That yeah, he, absolutely. He, he, he didn't. He, so the perfect the perfect solution or a, a good solution anyway was on their books, but ruled himself mm. out. And then the manager decided, not unreasonably, to not prioritise that because he wanted to address other areas of the squad. But all they've managed to fucking sign is Ericsson and a left back. And, like, arguably not address the bigger holes in the squad. Yeah. It's, like, such a good encapsulation of at least the football operations of Manchester United. Is like... But also the, the, the lack of brains in some of these players. I mean, if you're Dean Henderson, you're thinking, this is a manager who wants a keeper to play with his feet. Yeah. Uh, you know, play out from the back, sweep, you know... Just say when. I'll just sit here, watch the hay I throw it in the net for two or three weeks, and then I'm your number one for the rest of the season. Yeah. But to say, oh, I didn't want him to see me play because of what? You want your move to Forest? I mean, like, that's not. Our, like, it, it might get him in an England squad for the World Cup, but surely being United's number one for the next three months will give him a much better chance. Yeah. Um, so, I like, even that situation, that, that really, I said at the time, it just sums up the stupidity. I, like, I can't even fathom why he thought saying that out loud, especially since he's still on loan there. I mean, he's still a United player. He's still, we're probably paying the majority of his 100k a week wages still. Um, so he's not in, endearing himself to anybody if he does end up having to come back here and, you know, take over as number one. So I just, I didn't understand that interview that he gave. He obviously wanted to make a point. Um, but we all know anyways that Oli constantly promised players that this was their season, they were going to start, etc. We've seen it with, you know, strikers, Van der Beek, uh, Twanzeby, uh, Dallow was going to move and he was promised more game time. So it was something he did constantly. So it shouldn't be a surprise that he got screwed over. But I, I just can't understand why he wouldn't see the new manager as finally his chance to, to be United's number one, uh, especially, you know, he still has a big hefty contract left. Um, so it was very, very strange comments, I thought. But again, just sums up the fuckery that exists in some of these players' heads at Carrington that just can't seem... There's just no logic to any of them. Uh, the more they speak, the the more stupid they become. 
Now, there's two teams unbeaten six points from six at the top of the league, um, Man City and Arsenal. And I suppose just thinking back to pre-season, um, Spurs had a lot of the pre-season hype. Um, a lot of people were kind of pegging them for third place. Uh, Chelsea and, and Arsenal were kind of competing now for fourth and fifth. Phil, did we did we sleep a little bit on Arsenal going into this season? I had Arsenal as fourth. Um, I I will stand over that. Um, I think they have a very reasonable chance of being fourth. I think they have absolutely no chance in the entire world of winning the league. <laughs> and like clip it and play it back to me when they do. But um, I do not trust that collection of players and that manager to be able to break ninety points and keep pace with the actual Pep Guardiola when they have, as Ender calls him, Pep with hair in the dugout. Um, I think they've been really good. Don't get me wrong, right? And I've probably been higher on Arsenal and burnt by them more often than I care to think. Um, and they, like, Jesus has settled in really well. And, um, like, you know, th- like things are looking really good. And they ha- had an already nice bank of, like, young players there. Like, like I, I don't think I need to tell anyone how big of a fan I am of Saka. But I think... There is probably no better fan base to get ahead of themselves than Arsenal, uh, whose fans seem to think that they're already on the way to their first title since whatever year it was under Wenger 2004 or whatever the feck it was. Um, listen, I think they're going to be right in the teeth of a Champions League race, um, maybe with some World Cup weirdness. I mean, possibly third, but like, I, I think we probably gave them due consideration and due fairness, I think, over the course of a 38-game season. And I think they do well to remember this when they lose two or three games in the bounce and they veer the other way and Arsenal fan TV is rare, is raging and shouting and screaming. Um, so, listen, I think it's been a great start. Literally can't fault it because they're two from two. Um, but I would caution, I would, but I would ask them to proceed with extreme caution any further than a, a return to the Champions League. Yeah, it's tough after my um, <clears throat> rant about your man. <laughs> <laughs> Only two weeks ago, I'd all of a sudden sit here and say, whoa, Arsenal, yeah, well, I've, se- I've seen the light. Uh, I thought they were started really, really well against Palace, uh, in fairness, but there were still signs of that, you know, old fragility and, and you know, they were looking not to concede and, and then obviously got the own goal, which kind of settled that, but... Again, on, on Saturday against Leicester, you know, went 2-1, then 3-2, and, and they just managed to, you know, hang on to that situation. So in terms of what we're used to, the, you know, I don't want to say crumbling Arsenal, but when they're under a bit of pressure, they, they seem to be lacking. They, they, their first two games are a very positive sign that there's a bit more sturdiness in the squad. And I think certainly Saliba, more than anybody, introduces that because, you know, I thought he was unbelievable in France for the last two seasons and and certainly is, is, is going to be a key part of them going forward. But you know, already you're thinking Bournemouth, Saturday evening, half five, you know, it's just the type of fixture where Arsenal get a bit giddy, rock up, think, you know, business as usual, and then make an absolute shower of themselves. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, listen, if they beat Bournemouth, then they're Fulham on, you know, the following weekend uh, at home. So we could easily be sitting here in two weeks' time talking about 12 points from 12. Um, And then you'd have to take them seriously just at that point. But um, you know, you know, in my defence, during that rant, I did say his summer business was very good, and they looked good in preseason. <laughs> you know, to cover myself slightly. Uh, but this is like the you know, from always sunny meme. You're playing both sides, so you'll always yeah, win, yeah. You know, it's just you know, I, I did throw that in there in the middle of you know calling him a prick or whatever it was. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, 
listen, Arsenal getting giddy in August is not news at the moment. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see. But certainly the squad looks good and they've started very well. So fair dues. I'll give them that. But we'll, we'll see where they are in December. Quick word on Spurs, Chelsea then, lads. And on the 30th anniversary of the Premier League, I think Tuchel and, and Conte served up one of, one of the all-time great moments uh, at the end of that. Um, I suppose on the pitch, it was it was a pretty decent game. Um, and off the pitch, um, serving up all we want in, in, in classic Barclays fashion. Um, hug it to your veins, etc., etc. Hmm. But um, I suppose uh, quickly on the pitch for a second, um, Chelsea, I thought, were excellent in the first half. But Spurs, I think it's probably a huge point gain for them in that, you know, it was one of those results where you come away feeling like a win. Uh, the celebrations in, in the away in there with Harry Kane getting that, what was it, 96 minute uh, uh, equaliser um, to make it to all. But, you know, it, I really like this Conte team because I think he's kind of fashioned the side in his image in that, you know, they kept going to the end. They're a little bit wiry. They're a little bit edgy. You know, they're flying into tackles, even though they weren't necessarily playing too well. Uh, and it took them a while um, to kind of get going, maybe midway through the second half. Um, uh, just before the Heiberg goal, they made some adjustments. I think they went to 3-4-3 outright and and it seemed to work a little bit better. But um, a hell of a result for Spurs, I thought. And I mean, Phil, classic Barclays action. You just can't really beat it, can you? Oh, I mean, the second half was absolutely perfect. No notes, like hilariously fucking brilliant everything like from the second that that fell and uh, that wasn't given against Bantekur I just knew it was going to end up in a goal even my Chelsea won the ball back I was like this is like they're going to score here and like the place is going to go bananas and it was amazing from that point on it was just off to the races it was incredible like you said the two lads at the end you know the like thousands of memes that have poured forth from the handshake it's been like absolutely spot on ideal perfect I could not have asked for a better Super Sunday um, and like the chat after everything, all of it was just absolutely ideal. A brilliant tribute to um, to the league on its 30th birthday. As you said uh, earlier in the week on Twitter, Kev, pageantry in, is like what Premier League has been about for 30 years. And that was just pageantry and, and pantomime. Um, on, on the pitch, I thought Chelsea were really good in the way that Tuchel's Chelsea have been in that they're really good until they get to the box and then they're a small bit toothless. And like even the goal they got was as a result of Spurs for some reason not marking their massive central defender with any Spurs' massive lads as opposed to any real kind of ingenuity from Chelsea. They looked a small bit toothless, lacking a little bit of cutting edge. And I it like not saying it's always going to be this way, but it was the sort of game that kind of made you or your worst fears about the Raheem Sterling signing kind of came to be in that he was at his least cutting edge and least incisive in the way that Chelsea often are themselves before they signed them. Um, I thought it was a, I agree with you, I thought it was a great point for Spurs. Um, I thought they showed really good battle and needle and snark. And like you said, they, they're not shy of, of flying in. And Conte really has them kind of back in that kind of knife between the teeth, Pochettino mode, but maybe even a little bit more of snide about them, sort of. Um, but all that said, I think the way that they were pretty comprehensively dealt with might point to the fact that it kind of backs up our thinking a little bit that they won't quite have the legs to do to do the title push justice in that I think teams might be able to... And listen, Chelsea are a very good team, but I think there are ways the teams could probably learn from what Chelsea did and what Tuchel did to kind of 
blunt them a little bit. Um, and so I think the fight was great, and they're I think they're geared up for a really good season, and they clearly have an excellent squad. And like 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 Richarlison coming off the bench, I thought made a big difference to them. And so that squad is going to help. But I think the first kind of hour or so was probably a pointer as to why they might not break break into that title race in the way that I think they might. But the last kind of 15 minutes of a fight and scramble is maybe why they'll be the best of the rest. Yeah, just to defend Spurs a little bit, um, they didn't have any new signings starting as well. So I think that's a really interesting part. Uh, mm-hmm. I think especially once Perisic, I think he's going to be a huge part of what Conte is trying to do. He was a huge part of the uh, Syria um, title that Inter won. Uh, I know Sessegnon has started the season pretty well and finished last season great. And, and certainly Conte has, you know, revived his Spurs career after, you know, he looked dead in the water there. Uh, same with Ben Davis. But uh, I, it was interesting to see how I, I thought Spurs, <laughs> they started really, really poorly, actually. And Chelsea were all over them. I didn't expect that lack of intensity in the second game into the season from Conte's team. Mm. But certainly the second half seemed to switch them on a lot. Um, but I was generally pretty impressed with Chelsea, more than I expected to be. But, you know, I think it's a huge two weeks for their entire season in terms of whether they get a number nine or not. Because you look at the, the game against Everton, a Jorginho penalty, the game against Spurs, you know, Koulibaly volleying it in from a corner. Those things aren't likely going to happen every week. And and they need something more sustainable up front than than you know Havertz as a false nine or you know Mount as a false nine or, or Sterling filling in that position as well. I, I think you know if they can get a real top quality number nine from somewhere, I think everything else is looking really really positive for Chelsea, who you know I felt watching them pre season looked certainly Tuchel looked very frustrated and Amanda I thought who who might walk away from the show altogether, but. Uh, their league start has been very encouraging and, and if they can somehow find a striker from somewhere in the next two weeks I, I think they can have a really positive season I, I, I definitely think they're you know the top two in terms of the best of the rest um, I know we've just discussed Arsenal and their start but I, I think you know longer term managing the course of a season in terms of the personality the depth of squad the players they have uh, and of course the personalities they have managing them I, I think you know third and fourth certainly isn't beyond either of them and, and you know they'd be certainly my picks behind City and Liverpool to take that third and fourth spot Welcome to Ever. On the Irish front lads and we've been keeping track of, of some of the, the big performers uh, thus far this season and there's been plenty of them I think I saw a stat somewhere that uh, 10% of all championship starters at the weekend Irish, which just goes to show the uh, the volume of players that we have uh, around the football league at the moment, uh, and I imagine Stephen Kenny's head is absolutely melted at the moment, trying to narrow that down into a, a twenty three um, for the upcoming internationals. And I suppose two guys giving them food for thought uh, going into these games, um, kind of forgotten in terms of uh, the senior football for Ireland. Um, one very much so is Robbie Brady, who's seems to have completely revitalised his career at Preston. Um, bounced around a little bit. Uh, he was at Bournemouth, I think, and didn't seem to go well. I think it might have even been on trial at Preston before uh, before he got signed up uh, on a permanent deal. But um, the fans are raving uh, about him thus far. I think he was man of the match of the weekend. Um, supposedly, he's, he's linking in well with Tri Parrot uh, and may well be the answer to our questions at that kind of tricky left-back that left wing back position um, that we've been having 
uh, kind of, I suppose, beyond James McLean, a, a little bit uh, unsuccessful thus far. Yeah, like I, I like broadly speaking, I, I I loved Robbie Brady for the vast majority of his time in an Ireland jersey, uh, but mostly I preferred him in a, at worst a midfield position, if not slightly further forward. And maybe as a wing back, maybe that does answer the question. If we are, if we're playing the, the the three, maybe it takes away a little bit of the the defensive frailties he has. because um, I think he's brilliant on the ball, and I think definitely before Kenny, we didn't have enough players who were as good as him on the ball to waste him, for want of a better word, at left fullback. But maybe at left wing back, it might be a way forward. Like he clearly has bags of ability, um, and I think broadly speaking, has always done has brought a certain level to Ireland and brought an ability on the ball that I think we can never have enough of, especially if Kenny wants, especially the way Kenny wants us to play. Um, he probably lacks the get the get up and go that McLean nearly exclusively, that's what McLean brings. Um, but he does bring obviously a really great set piece delivery as well as some kind of high quality on the ball. He's in, he's in a situation there at Preston, which seems to be relatively positive. Uh, obviously, the the manager gave that co- that kind of soundbite during the week that you know, like a no dickheads policy or whatever, and um, which which is a pretty standard uh, trope for a successful clubs. So, um, he's obviously trying to go about building a squad that kind of has harmony, and you tend to see that the happier a player is, the better he's gonna he's gonna turn out performances. So I hope he's in a, a kind of a good environment there that lets him kind of bring out the best because, as you said, he's kind of chopped and changed changed a little bit. Whereas before, when he was a bit more settled at Norwich or Burnley or wherever he was, where he was settled, it was was when he tended to play best for Ireland. And um, so I, I I don't think it can be I don't think it can be anything but a good thing for Ireland to have mm-hmm. Brady back in this sort of space and at least given us options, like you said, in that position that we've kind of struggled to get a consistent uh, performer in. Yeah, and the other being uh, Callum Adoda, who's obviously. Uh, had a flying start at Cardiff City and a guy who's um, really favoured under Martin O'Neill, I think, um, uh, who, when, it come, when he was uh, uh, managing the Ireland team. Um, still only 27 and he's had a, a rake of injuries over the past couple of years, which has kind of curtailed. Um, and I don't think uh, he's been involved much, if at all, under Stephen Kenny thus far. So uh, just another name to, to add to the hat. Um uh, or want to be considering. Um, and, and just a quick word then on Michael Obafemi doing Michael Obafemi things at, Swan, uh, at Swansea. Rather. Um, he's had a, a pretty impressive start of the season. Um, assist at the weekend against Blackpool for a, a late winner where he just absolutely stormed up the pitch, um, unmarked, uh, squared it to Olivier Nitschem, uh for the winner there. And then he had a pretty decent goal last night uh, against Millwall. Uh, along with Ryan Manning, I should add, but Obafemi seems like a lad who finally has his head strapped on, scored that screamer um, during the summer for Ireland, seems to be enjoying his football at long last, uh, which is great to see because he just looks like he's the kind of type of player that we're missing for Ireland or have been missing for, for so long. Yeah, absolutely. He definitely got into a bit of a funk after that Southampton spell, you know, where it was almost... You know, relying just on that goal he scored at Stamford Bridge, but um, certainly got his head right at Swansea City, and and I mean that incredible performance against Scotland in the summer, where, you know, not only was he got the goal and assist, his hold up play was incredible, but his physique, he's built out so much. I mean, he just looks so strong and powerful, and uh, you know, if 
if you look at that Ireland side, we have a lot of nice footballers, would you say? Um, but, you know, if he can add that physicality up front that, you know, the likes of, of Benny and, and maybe even Brady on that left winger, whoever it is, can play off, um, then I think we're in really, really good shape. As much as I like Adam Ida, as well as he's done as, you know, number nine when he has started for Ireland, especially, you know, thinking back to that Portugal performance, especially away. But um, Obafemi certainly brings something different to the table. And, you know, now that he's seems to have got his head right um, and, you know, turned 22 in the summer. So he's hitting that age now where, you know, you're kind of expecting to see something that we didn't, you know, we didn't see Aaron Connolly push on at that age. We haven't seen other players push on in their early 20s when, you know, they were highly rated as teenagers. But uh, I think it's a really exciting time for Kenny in terms of, you know, just as a general point, how many Ireland players are performing so well at the moment. But uh, I think Obafemi as our number nine seems to be the way forward, uh, especially when you look back at that, at that Scotland game. I know Ede is coming back from injury and we'll see how he, he progresses, obviously, in the, in the championship this season. And I hope he has a great season because technically I think he's a wonderful footballer. But uh, in terms of what... Obafemi can give Ireland. I, I think it's really exciting that he seems to certainly be enjoying football again, and um, you know his spell at Swansea could be you know a career changer because he was really really struggling at that point to you know nail down his identity as a footballer for both club and country. So um, you know it's I'm really excited to see what he can do, and and hopefully Kenny tries to build that forward line around him because he definitely has the ability to to bring other players uh, into the game around them. And I think that's really what Ireland need at the moment. Big duck. Big duck. Big duck. Quick scan around Europe, lads. And I think we'll get into a little bit more in-depth detail as the weeks and months go on throughout the course of the season. Um, but just a couple of points I wanted to touch on quickly. Firstly, in the Bundesliga, and I'm not sure if you saw Michael Cox's article in the Athletic today, where he did a little bit of analysis on if uh, if Bayern had to start with a, a one 0 deficit, how would that change the the look of uh, of the Bundesliga? Which obviously they've won ten in a row now. They would have won three out of those ten uh, if they if they had that one goal. Uh, if they had to start one goal behind, but I suppose it, it does kind of serve up that the conversation again about the Bundesliga. I mean, Bayern have two wins from two, eight goals scored one against um, very, very likely to, to kind of storm to their 11th league in a row. And, you know, all the tropes go around about, you know, Farmers League and I think the French League gets gets the, the, the bad end of the stick and, and Bundesliga kind of gets away with it. But Bayern's domination has been quite unhealthy for the German football for quite some time. Even though it's, it's you know, they're a well-run club and, and you kind of have to admire and respect how, how they operate. But, in terms of competitiveness and, and, and how they tend to kind of hoover up a lot of the talent uh, around the league and, and, you know, look at some of the signings that they made this summer with, with Sadio Mane and, and Matches De Ligt, you know, two absolutely world-class players just added to the pile. It does not bode well, I suppose. And, and uh, f- you know, not for the future of German football, but I suppose from, from a neutral point of view, it does kind of take a lot of the, the interest away when, when it does look like Bayern will likely have the, the title wrapped up come come Easter. First thing I want to say is that 
the like I get why they did the article, but the concept of Bayern starting minus one goal in an article <laughs> made me want to delete my athletic subscription yes. right away yeah. because Jesus Christ, have you nothing better to write about than that? But the the wider point around it, um, I and I think when you mentioned them hoovering up the talent in the league, I think that's the central point, and like we're we're. One Liverpool season away from City having won five leagues in a row. They've won four and five as it is, and they're halfway towards doing a Bayern. And could anyone really bet on them slowing down anytime soon? I know the leagues have been more competitive, but still, City are developing a, a, a run not dissimilar to, to where Bayern were. I suppose that's one thing to say. But what has been different about City is that they haven't constantly picked off Liverpool or United or Chelsea's best player season on season on season like Bayern have. So Bayern have been strengthening themselves all the way along while crucially weakening their their own uh, competitors or their biggest competitors. And obviously that started with people like Gutze and Lewandowski going from, from Dortmund when they were at, at an equal pegging to Bayern. And I think that's probably been the crucial bit um, that the disparity between their, uh, the, their resources and the resources of the other clubs in the Bundesliga has meant that instead of the best talent from the Bundesliga or some of the best talent going to the Premier League or Spain, Bayern have been able to kind of wait it out and get these players on the relative cheap. And it's like a double whammy in terms of severely weakening the the closest challengers while strengthening Bayern. The likes of Mane and Delict, brilliant signings, and I think it's going to be great for them. I think that's less concerning to me than the fact that they could sign Lewandowski on a free or they pay for up a Meccano or they uh, take they take Sabitzer from uh, from uh, Leipzig and sit him on the bench and don't play him. Um, they're the things that probably concern me a little bit more. Um, but I think with the way that German football is modelled, there's not likely to be a change in that because they have such a strong determination to keep that kind of fan ownership or at least that fan guidance. And that'll stop any sort of crazy or... Um, or unsustainable investment that might be needed to tackle this sort of thing with Bayern. Like, we're not going to see a Saudi uh, investment fund take over, you know, Leverkusen, for example. And they're actually a bad example because they're they're kind of one of the exceptions to that fan ownership rule. But I think that probably, while it works a little bit against the uh, competitiveness in league title terms, it probably protect a healthier relationship between the fan and the football pyramid as a whole so there is kind of peaks and troughs to it but um in in terms of like the, the longer term viability of the bundesliga as a product outside of germany that's what's going to stop it challenging the premier league you know it's not going to be as sexy for the for the us or asian markets to pay massive um massive television deals for because it's basically one team and a couple of decent challengers but um, in a in a kind of a longer term sense within Germany, I'd imagine it's in a quite a healthy position just because of the the very rule that is letting Bayern get into this position. If that makes sense. Yeah, I really struggle with criticism of the Bundesliga in general. Um, we've reached this stage in football where there there is this crossover in capitalism, and you know, not to get too deep about it, but you know, taking on debt it seems to be a positive thing in order to keep fans happy or buy players or up upgrade stadiums or whatever it is. The Bundesliga model of, you know, the cheapest season tickets in Europe, the best fan attendance in Europe, uh, it still is, you know, outside of Bayern and maybe Dortmund, it still is an extremely competitive league. Eintracht Frankfurt have just won the Europa League, which most people didn't expect. But 
that's been building from them for years in terms of how they've improved their squad and their team. The level of competitiveness in the Bundesliga um, is still really, really high outside of Bayern rocking up and, and scoring four or five in the first half of the first game of the season. And it still has that negative perception that, you know, it is, uh, you know, the French league or, you know, the Portuguese league where everyone else is just cannon fodder for the top two. It really isn't like that. And um, I, I just struggle constantly with this criticism that, you know, Bayern have somehow, you know, driven an articulated truck through the competitiveness that is the Bundesliga. A lot of teams have benefited from chasing Bayern constantly and trying to reach that standard. We saw it with Arby Leipzig a couple of years ago where, you know, they were on Bayern's tail for about three quarters of the season. And that's what, you know, helped Timo Werner improve as, as a player. It's what helped, you know, um, Savica, who obviously ended up going to Munich. But, you know, they all improved with that chase and that, you know, constant pursuit of Bayern. And, and we've seen Dortmund do things the right way in terms of the players that they target and bring in. And yes, they get that perception as a feeder club. But in the meantime, I don't think fans will argue from the entertainment that they got from a Sancho or a Haaland or Mkhitaryan or, you know, Hummels at the time. You know, they won a German Cup on the back of that. They competed for leagues on the back of that. They're not this downward spiral that they were in you know sort of 2005 mm. where they needed money from Bayern to actually bail themselves out um you know these clubs aren't in debt they don't owe banks a lot of money they don't have huge loans against their stadium they're not desperately seeking sponsorship in order to survive everything they do is the right way and it's a very German thing and you know I used to do uh, you know a lot of work over there for one of my companies and the way Germans do things even crossing the road when a traffic light isn't red, you know, you, you immediately have people shouting at you for jaywalking. We're not used to that in Ireland or the UK. There's just a very different mentality over there. Um, so I, I, you know, I was really disappointed with the, the Michael Cox article. Quickly on PSG lads and uh, the, it's, I suppose moving on to a league that's kind of a forefront conclusion come, come, uh, come Easter as well. But um, PSG, they kind of remind me of an NBA team in that they have 38 games to just kind of get over and get themselves ready for the playoffs. But in this case, the playoffs are the Champions League and they have three absolutely massive characters that they have to try and keep happy. Uh, maybe kind of akin to, to the Brooklyn Nets uh, last year with, uh, with Kevin Durant and all those boys. But we have Mbappe... <laughs> And Neymar and Messi, and Messi seems to be the the quiet one of the group. Um, and here we have Mbappe. I'm not sure if you've seen the clip uh, at the weekend of him basically downing tools as as PSG were in attack. Um, and he also had a, a, a grievance with uh, with Neymar over a penalty. Um, so earlier earlier in the game, Mbappe missed his penalty. Uh, so Neymar stepped up uh, and took the second and wouldn't let uh, wouldn't let Mbappe near it. And I think. Um, Lewis Campos brought both of them into the into the office after the game and basically giving them a scolding uh, uh, for being childish schoolboys. But it is kind of funny, you know, two wins from two this early into the season. Uh, Champions League, uh, a, a bit of a distance off yet. That, uh, there isn't all too, mu- too much harmony in the, in the camp over at PSG. And it lo- sounds like, for once, Mbappe is the one kind of uh, ruling the roost and, and trying to I suppose keep his ego in check is is going to be a little bit of a problem if PSG want to have uh, to get have any ambitions of, of winning the Champions League. 
Yeah, like by all accounts, since since uh, Neymar's good friend Messi rolled into the club, um, Mbappe has been kind of shunted to the side in in that kind of friendship circle that it's uh, the bromance that had kind of blossomed when they first joined together in whatever year that was, twenty seventeen or whatever, has been put on the back burner uh, as as Neymar rekindled his his his, uh, his friendship with Messi. And I don't know whether it's that sort of like you know, uh, parlor intrigue or palace intrigue that is. Um, that's going to keep people going because I suppose, like you said, and I think the Brooklyn Nets is a really good example. Like none of this shit matters until like February, so I suppose we're we're going to read into the psychodrama in Paris because you know they're going to win the league by twelve to fifteen points and they're going to arrive into the last sixteen, you know, having gone through the group okay and then maybe face a test. So like it, it it's an interesting space to be in that it's just like nearly a kind of a reality TV show. You know, it's like Love Island or Big Brother where we're studying the minutia of the interactions between these people and, they, you know, they get blown up and blown out um, because there's nothing else to talk about, nothing of consequence for so long and um, until the rubber hits the road. So, like, I think we're probably going to see a little bit of this. You know, there'll be cuts now the next time Mbappe doesn't pass to Neymar and Neymar gets tick or if, or if Messi's getting annoyed. I think we'll see a little <laughs> bit of that as well. Like, you know, it's, it's going to, you know, like it's going to keep going around in a circle. I think one thing that is going to be a saving grace from the kind of PSG psychodrama is the three of them are obviously going to have a massive target on the World Cup. And you can only imagine what it's going to be like in January or February when they all coalesce back together if one or the other has knocked the other one out of the World Cup. And, you know, can Neymar and Mbappe coexist after Mbappe dashes Neymar World Cup dreams or something? So um, I think that could be another layer we see um, later in the year but I think it's just a case of just nothing more interesting to talk about with them because mm. it's like you know a, 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 it's the, the outcome's already known and so you have to kind of focus on these little interactions and the kind of psychodrama until you know they get knocked out by you know Panathinaikos or somebody in the Champions League quarterfinals and somehow managed to stuff it up again so <laughs> um, yeah like I, I find that case way less interesting until it comes to like their emotional collective breakdown in the Champions League quarterfinals but until then I just I, I can't get too excited even though they're three of the best players playing the game it's such a pity that that project leaves me so cold and um, just mm. because you know like you said there's only one thing that matters and it doesn't matter until February yeah I can't imagine a Neymar or an Mbappe uh, being as as low key about uh, uh, an international win as say Sadio Mane was when uh, when he knocked Mo Salah out huh. uh, of the African Cup last January, but um, that'll be an, uh, I forgot about that World Cup scenario. Pretty interesting one there for PSG. It could all completely unravel depending on how, how that goes, uh, and there could be war uh, over in Paris come come uh, January or February. Um, but I think we'll leave it there, lads. In the Phil, thanks a million. Thanks, thanks, lads. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>